0: from Kirkco
1: Media. Welcome back to our new season of medicine. We're still practicing. In this new year, our world's most respected medical professionals dive into even greater healthcare challenges. And one thing is absolutely clear. They're selfless in their practice and the best of them are making the world a better place through groundbreaking medical innovation. Today, we accelerate into our new season with two remarkable doctors. They are best described as compassionate heroes. First, of course, our host, Dr. Stephen Tabak. The other is Johns Hopkins' own Dr. Dale Needham. In this episode, we get to explore his groundbreaking work involving the outcomes and wakefulness of patients in an ICU. It's more important today than ever, and his work is changing the way hospitals around the world approach patient care. Dr. Tabak and I are pleased to share this with you today on Medicine We're Still Practicing. I'm Bill Curtis. Well, as you heard our special guest from Johns Hopkins Medicine, Dr. Dale Needham. He received his Ph.D. in clinical investigation from the Bloomberg School of Public Health and Johns Hopkins University. He's a professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins. He holds an appointment in physical medicine and rehabilitation. We're going to hear more about that shortly. Dr. Needham also serves as the medical director of the Critical Care Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation Program, and he's the director of Outcomes After Critical Illness and Surgery Group. Welcome, Dr. Needham. It's nice to have you join us today.
0: Thank you so much, Bill. I'm very happy to be here.
1: If you don't mind, I'd like to begin at the end. Recovery. You've taken a solid position that motion and cognitive activity in an ICU prevents complications and accelerates recovery. How does that work exactly?
0: Absolutely. This is critically important to patients' recovery before, during, or after the COVID pandemic. Traditional critical care has patients deeply sedated, lying motionless, with many, many severe long-lasting impairments in their nerves, muscles, and brain. You know, people may come into the intensive care unit primarily for a breathing problem and need to go on to a ventilator, artificial life support, but these people that survive their ICU stay most often complain about problems with their thinking or their nerves and muscles, not with their breathing. So it's critically important that we think about the brain, the nerves, and the muscles, in addition to the heart, lungs, and kidneys when people are in the intensive care unit.
1: A stay in the ICU affects your thinking?
0: Absolutely it does. We know that so many people in the intensive care unit experience delirium or confused thinking caused by many different things, including their serious illness, including sedation medications, and patients that have longer durations of delirium are much more likely to have long-term impairments in their thinking, problems with their memory, problems with their ability to plan and organize various complex tasks. These are really important things that impair people's quality of life once they get out of the hospital and back to home.
2: I grew up in the era where it would not be considered compassionate to put a tube down somebody's throat and not simultaneously sedate the heck out of them and a combination of pulmonary critical care and physical medicine, even to this day, are probably the only one in the world who has this linked specialty in this amazing time of transition. How do you convince your patients that this is actually a reasonable thing to do to keep you awake, keep them awake after we've put a tube down their throat?
0: Most patients don't know how critical care is delivered. So most patients... We don't need to have discussions with them around this other than when we're not giving them deep sedation and they're awake and alert and can interact with us, we can directly ask them if they're anxious, if they're in pain and give just the right amount of medication to take away any discomfort and allow them to be awake. And in fact, when we most often ask patients, you know, are you uncomfortable? Would you like some additional medications? When patients are not delirious, most often they tell us, no, I do not want your medications that give me confused thinking. Let's give a little bit of pain medication. Let's be up and moving so my back doesn't hurt laying in bed. Let's turn on TV. Let's engage with family, either in person or through video conference. Let's do some things that help distract them. We're also very fortunate that we have Dr. Megan Hosey, a rehabilitation psychologist, who will address issues of anxiety through talking to patients, rather than trying to give them powerful sedatives that cause confused thinking, delirium, and long-term cognitive impairments.
2: So did you have a difficult time in the transition? Having been in the ICU now, I'm in my 29th year. There is a culture, at least in our main intensive care unit, the culture has always been patient comfort is paramount concern. And the I think the reflex amongst the nursing staff has always been because of the old adage to sedate is really compassionate. Did you have the same impediment that we've been trying to overcome in changing the culture of from sedation to awakening?
0: Absolutely. Most people who practice in the intensive care unit, telling them that our patients should be awake and moving is like telling them the earth is flat. This is completely different than. Everything that most of us learned when we were in our training and most of us have seen. However, if we go back to the early days of critical care, when intensive care units were first being created, patients were routinely awake and moving at that early stage. But then the pendulum swung, just as you said, with people thinking that sedation was going to make patients feel better. But when we began to think that, we didn't understand this concept of delirium, and we didn't realize that giving patients these powerful sedatives also directly causes this confused thinking. And during this confused thinking, patients aren't calm, peaceful, in an amnestic state like in the operating room, these patients are having horrible nightmares and delirium, feeling like somebody's trying to harm them, that there's blood coming out of the walls, that there's rats on the floor, that their dead baby is laying next to them in bed. These are all actual memories that patients have had during their delirium. So there's nothing about that that's calm and peaceful. And the biggest modifiable risk factor For delirium, is our heavy use of sedatives that must change in ICUs in order to provide compassionate care to our patients. These memories that I've talked about can last for months or years and are typically the same kind of memories that patients flash back to when they have post traumatic stress disorder after the ICU that affects approximately one in four patients that have been in an ICU.
2: I have a very interesting case of a very bright gentleman and had a prostate biopsy. And the prostate biopsy led to a brief episode of septic shock, required artificial resuscitation for a very brief period of time, maybe 36 to 48 hours. And we got him off the medications known as pressors that elevate the blood pressure. And soon thereafter, he was seemingly back to normal in terms of his cognitive abilities when we were speaking to him in the ICU. And he had a stay in the hospital probably no more than 72 hours. Walking, talking, eating. But since this time, he can sit at his desk, look at his papers, and not know what he's looking at, gets disoriented on his drive home, fearful of flying even an hour when he was normally flying daily back and forth, and is still able to work. But he definitely feels that he has a major disability just from that short term ICU stay. He did not have delirium that we were aware of. Two years later, he is still struggling. What can I offer him at this juncture?
0: So one of the important things is recognizing that these are real symptoms. The thing that is so challenging for ICU survivors is if they go to a physician and they talk about anxiety or muscle weakness or difficulties with memory and the physician's discounted. These symptoms are so incredibly real if you actually look for them, know about them, and measure them. So A vital part of the recovery process for many patients after critical illness is involving mental health professionals, a psychologist, a psychiatrist, a counselor, somebody to help them work through post-traumatic stress disorder. And of course, there are primary care doctors who also have this kind of skill set as well. We just need to recognize that the entity of post-traumatic stress disorder can happen to somebody that was critically ill, somebody that wasn't in a car crash, somebody that wasn't in military combat, somebody that wasn't sexually assaulted, but somebody who was critically ill. And what they're having post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms about are of things that never actually happened. Unlike the other people that I've talked about, it's the memory of them believing that they were sexually assaulted in the ICU or that a dead child was laying next to them. These things are incredibly frightening and feel just like the memories of anyone else of a real event. So it really is important to get that help in order to work through these things.
2: How much of it is psychosocial that we can work through with therapy? And how much of this is maybe a subclinical or a metabolic disturbance of the brain that is going to be lifelong? What do you think, Dale, on on something like that?
0: So I think some of the psychological symptoms such as post-traumatic stress disorder can be worked through and can be worked through because we have existing therapies that address it. They may address post-traumatic stress disorder from a different cause, but we have no reason to believe that those kind of interventions are not also effective when it comes to PTSD, anxiety, or depression after critical illness, the bigger challenge I think that you highlight as well is the cognitive impairment, the difficulties with memory and thinking. And there we have much less evidence about interventions that are going to make those kind of impairments better, but it doesn't mean that patients shouldn't seek help because through things like rehabilitation psychologists, we can learn better ways to adapt. Even if we have more difficulties with planning and executing tasks, we can do compensatory interventions. We can begin to make lists more often. Lists are going to help us with memory impairment. We can plan things out. We can write them down. We can organize our days in the way to address potential cognitive impairments. So there are ways to have a way forward and to improve patient outcomes for sure.
2: How does care differ now in the intensive care unit in your ICU and what is recommended for all the ICUs now?
0: Sure. So we routinely have our patients awake and moving whenever possible. That's the default. So there are modern sedation scoring systems. One is called a RAS score. So our RAS target, our sedation target for patients who have a breathing tube is a RAS score of zero, which means alert and calm. That's our goal. That's how we come to work every day. That's our default. That's what we aim for. It's not possible every single patient every single day, but our default approach is to have patients awake and moving. We're very fortunate that we spend a lot of time with our nurses and our nurses have training in a culture that that embraces this over time. We are very fortunate that we have occupational and physical therapists and rehabilitation doctors and psychologists that all help us with that approach to care. But it all starts with the ICU doctor and the ICU nurse that are arranging care such that a patient can be awake and not just starting continuous infusions of heavy sedative medications just because there's a breathing tube in place. And importantly, this isn't just a practice at Johns Hopkins Hospital. The Society of Critical Care Medicine in 2018 released clinical practice guidelines called PADIS. These are guidelines for management of pain, agitation, sedation, delirium, Immobility and Sleep, PADIS, P-A-D-I-S, and said that this approach to care is what the evidence tells us we should be delivering to all of our patients. And in fact, that same organization, the Society of Critical Care Medicine, has put together bundles of practical interventions to practically help ICU doctors and nurses and PTs and OTs come together to deliver this kind of evidence-based care. So I don't want anyone to think that this is something that only happens at Johns Hopkins or this is something that's unique to us. There's a large body of evidence and clinical practice guidelines that tell us that this is how we should be practicing, as well as practical resources to help us with this, with this bundle of care to help our patients be awake and moving
1: and have better outcomes. Okay, Dr. Needham, we're going to take 30 seconds, and we'll be right back.
2: A moment of your time. A new podcast from Kurt Co Media. Currently 21 years old. And today, I felt like I'm magic extended from her fingertips down
0: to the you base of my spine. You have to take of
1: care smile. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your me, voice.
0: Every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my like dreams.
1: Her fingers were facing
0: me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being it's questioned. going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys walkie-talkies,
2: wonders to whom she should give the second device. Cats don't
0: love humans. We never did, we never will, we just find one that The beauty that of rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in front of you.
2: And so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart,
0: but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kirkco.com slash a moment of your time.
1: Well, we're back with Dr. Dale Needham. Dale, I understand where you're coming from. I just can't imagine where you find the kind of staff, the kind of nursing and doctors that can handle wrapping their arms around the psychology involved with this and the care and the time. And you must be multiplying the staff in an ICU fourfold to be able to handle something like this as opposed to a bunch of patients that are basically sleeping.
0: So absolutely not. We've had no change in our staffing from the bad old days when our patients were deeply sedated to this modern approach. So we did a structured quality improvement project many years ago to bring us from the dark ages of deep sedation and patients laying motionless to the modern era. And there's been no change in our staffing whatsoever in terms of nurses with this approach to care. Interestingly, when patients are awake and alert, They can actually participate or assist in their own care. They are less likely to suddenly be agitated and have unpredictable behavior when they're not delirious from the sedation medications that we're giving to them. So we haven't had a change in our nursing staffing. And our nurses, interestingly, we've done qualitative research where we've had an independent interviewer talk to our nursing, talk to all of the people on a multidisciplinary team and do in-depth semi-structured interviews to ask And our nurses tell us that this approach to care gives them greater job satisfaction to see them actually participating in patients' recovery and interacting with patients. So
2: specifically then, aside from keeping the patients more awake and alert, in what ways are the nurses interacting with the patients that are going to help them physically and cognitively? What are they doing with their patients?
0: Sure. So when patients are alert, our nurses can then begin to reorient them, engage them in cognitive stimulation. So cognitive stimulation may be having conversations. We have some printed cards that are used for cognitive exercises. So so that's one thing in terms of Cognition, they can then actually provide reassurance to patients. When their thinking is not confused and the patient seems to be anxious, they can begin to say, Why are you feeling anxious? The patient might feel anxious simply because they're too hot or they're too cold. And the nurse can actually understand that when they're not confused and then adjust things so that they're more comfortable. Patients may be able to write with a paper and pen or communicate with an iPad or text messaging to help with communication. So cognitive stimulation, social support, and psychological support. But when patients are awake, then our nurses may actually get patients to sit on the edge of the bed, to stand beside the bed, to walk and sit in a chair outside of the bed while they've got a breathing tube in place. If we don't allow our patients to have bed rest and get weak, then our nurses often are able to help patients with those kind of mobility activities. Many of the patients walked into the hospital. So why should they not be able to sit up and stand and get out of the bed if we don't mandate bed rest and allow their muscles to waste away?
2: What role does the family play in in this issue?
0: So families are incredibly important. There's nobody that's going to help reassure a patient better than a family member. So if a family member can be at the bedside or if a family member can join through video conferencing, that can often help reassure a patient, can reorient a patient, can encourage a patient, you know, look at you, you're doing so great. Can you get out of bed? We have so many of our older patients, for instance, who are just so thrilled if through video conferencing, they can see their grandchild. Their grandchild gives them the incentive that they want to get better. You know, we said, as soon as you get better, we know that you want to go home. We know that you'd prefer to go home rather than going to a rehabilitation or skilled nursing facility. Can we work together now when you're in the ICU so you can get home to that grandchild even faster?
2: So, you know, I, I have to extend Bill's question because this notion that you did not have to expand resources I can see where that's true with nursing staff because nurses are all, always very engaged and they're right there at the bedside. But from the physical therapist perspective, where before you had 40 patients and half of them were deeply sedated, to now a culture change where everybody is awake. So now you are expected to do more in terms of not just range of motion, but in terms of actual increased mobility for these patients. How do you have enough support if you did not expand your physical therapy team?
0: You're absolutely right. I am so fortunate that we did expand our staffing in physical therapy and in occupational therapy. And we did that through creating a business case. We demonstrated to the hospital that early occupational physical therapy interventions both improved patient outcomes and reduced the length of stay. So we so called bent the cost curve, we had better outcomes at a lower cost. We created a business case to the hospital saying, this is a win-win. The hospital understood this and invested so that we did expand our OT and PT staffing exactly as what you said.
2: I need to buy that study from you and present it to our administration.
0: So we did create a business case. And actually, we created an Excel model, which is a standard way that finance people talk to each other that's freely available and downloadable so that a hospital can plug their own data in, create the financial analysis to bring to their financial people as part of a business case. So we really do want to create practical resources to help people improve care within their hospital, even if they're not a finance person to start with.
1: Dale, I imagine you're probably involved next November 4th through 6th, Johns Hopkins has your 10th annual Johns Hopkins Critical Care Rehabilitation Conference, and you're actually giving away the recipes to all of your research and all of your actions.
0: Absolutely, we are. And what happened is, as we've published more and more about this, we get so many asks for help. By email every single day. And we simply don't have an ability to respond to all of them in the level of detail that we would want because we want them to understand everybody's perspective because it takes a team. So, as a result, 10 years ago, we created the Johns Hopkins Critical Care Rehabilitation Conference. We originally hoped that maybe we would have 30 people attend. In the very first year that we offered it, we sold out. We had 300 people attend. That was the maximum capacity with 200 on a wait list. So every year since then, we've continued the conference to bring together our entire multidisciplinary team to, as you say, show the secret sauce, show what the research evidence is, but show how you implement it in practice, how you do culture change, talk about all of the practical things. In fact, we have patients and family members as part of that conference that talk about what the experience is like from their perspective, as well as so many frontline clinicians that aren't part of the research team, but are just part of everyday clinical care and saying how they actually do this in their practice. So it is a tremendous learning experience that we spend an awful lot of time to get out to people from across the United States and around the world.
2: So question for you, I am, you know, for better or worse in the private sector, and we have certainly embraced the philosophy and the tenets of early mobility and, and daily awakening and or maintaining wakefulness throughout the stay. And so our patients are kept awake to the greatest extent that we're able to do so. We obviously order physical therapy and occupational therapy, but I think we still struggle in terms of that early mobility and really maximizing a patient's physical capabilities and even maximizing their cognitive capabilities. Where do we go from here if we don't have right now the extra resources from the physical medicine side? you know, speech therapy does a lot of the cognitive work, but it's a small team and they don't do a lot of cognitive therapy from that department. Is there something we can do as critical care specialists on our own, maybe teaching the nurses to do things that are even a little bit beyond their scope or for even the physicians to do things a little beyond their scope to kind of bridge the gap until we get to the place where we have the added resources that we need?
0: Yeah, there's absolutely many different models for doing this. So, for example, some of my colleagues in Japan have physician-led mobility programs, not nurse-led, not PT-led, but physician-led. Obviously, other people from the team are are part of that as well. It's not physicians alone, but physicians play a very big role in the actual mobilization of patients. There's another study, for instance, that was conducted in the United States and Germany that was in surgical ICUs that was predominantly nurse-based mobility. So the two groups, the intervention group and the control group, both got the same amount of physical therapy, but the difference was the intervention group got added nurse-based mobility and had very improved outcomes. So nurses can be highly engaged in doing this, and often it's a bit of a partnership. So sometimes our nurses, our junior nurses may say, we didn't learn this in nursing school, Our more senior nurses may say, oh, yeah, yeah, this is kind of old hat, but I've fallen out of practice. So we have a partnership of our physical therapists with our nurses to make sure that there's safe mobilization, safe for the patient, safe for the nurse. And we try to recognize that our OT and PT and speech resources are relatively scarce resources. Let's use them on the most complex patients, the most challenging patients. And then there are other patients that through nurses and physicians, we may be able to to do a lot of this. And if we start this early, if we don't automatically deeply sedate patients and give them bed rest, then it's much easier to mobilize a patient that walked into the hospital a day or two ago. If they haven't had that prolonged bed rest and their muscles haven't melted away and they haven't gotten very weak, then it becomes much, much easier for a nurse to mobilize that kind of patient. The challenge that we face at large tertiary centers is often we have patients that are sent to us from other hospitals where they may have had two or three or four weeks of bed rest, and then we're really behind the eight ball because they've had a tremendous amount of muscle loss, and we're not going to be able to simply have the patient sit and stand because they've lost so much of the muscle. So starting early makes it much better for patients and much easier for all the clinicians involved.
1: Okay, Dr. Needham, we're going to take 30 seconds, and we'll be right back. Hi, I'm Robert Ross, host of Cars That Matter. You might be wondering what makes a car matter, and I have a feeling you already know the answer. Some cars have changed history. Some you can hear a mile away. Some have lines that make your heart skip a beat. If a car has ever made you look twice, then I think you know the ones that matter. Join me as I speak with designers, collectors, and market experts about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. Cars That Matter, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, we're back with Dr. Dale Needham and Dr. Stephen Tabak. So let me ask you a bit about our COVID situation. And obviously, we're going to be dealing with COVID patients in the hospital probably throughout the rest of 21. So this is now potentially just a new way of life in your hospitals, both Steve and Dale, you're still dealing with flu patients that end up getting pneumonia and taking things to another level, right? So with COVID, Dr. Needham, you've noticed some long-term both physical and cognitive impairments that you've already seen rear their ugly head in the fight against COVID. What have you noticed and what unique care are you trying to administer in your ICU for such patients?
0: You know, before COVID, with the Society of Critical Care Medicine about a decade ago, we got a multidisciplinary group of stakeholders together and created the term post-intensive care syndrome or PICS, P-I-C-S. We created that not as a scientific term. We created that because we needed to raise awareness and educate patients, families, doctors, nurses throughout the hospital and throughout clinics that many patients survive an ICU stay with physical, cognitive, and or mental health problems. We are seeing these same kinds of things in our critically ill patients that have had COVID as well. These can be long lasting impairments in one or all three of these areas. And it is a very, very big challenge. And what's happened is that many people that aren't familiar with long-term outcomes after intensive care are thinking that these are magically new problems. These are COVID-specific problems. But many of these are problems that were also around before COVID existed. And these are the kind of problems that created our Johns Hopkins critical care physical medicine rehab program to start having patients awake and moving early but to address the huge influx. So the difference during the COVID pandemic is that in the history of critical care, we've never had this many seriously ill patients. So what might once have been a very rare complication, now that we have so many more patients, we're seeing that kind of complication in a greater number of patients, despite it being perhaps the same percentage of patients. So the absolute number has increased. And to rise to this challenge, I'm so proud to be a colleague of Dr. Ann Parker and Dr. Emily Brigham, two pulmonary and critical care doctors at Johns Hopkins who have started the Johns Hopkins PACT Clinic, a clinic specifically dedicated to the care of patients who have had COVID, patients that were critically ill or not critically ill. And that's done specifically in partnership with our colleagues from Physical Medicine Rehabilitation. So they have created a clinic specifically for COVID survivors to have that multidisciplinary team together to help improve these patients' recovery.
2: Is there anything that they're doing specifically that's different than they would otherwise be doing for a post-critical care syndrome individual specific to COVID? Or is it just more of intensive therapy because we have so many people now who are suffering from this?
0: For the most part, many of the things that are happening would be the same things that are happening before COVID. But we need to keep watching for, are there any things that are particularly unique or different? So there is an eye out for these things. And what's so great about this kind of clinic where patients come together and so many of them can be seen by the same people is that they can easily begin to see if there are trends. Are there problems with heart function? And if there is, then there's one or two specific heart specialists that will see these patients. Is there a problem with balance or with having low blood pressure when you stand up and a fast heart rate, something called POTS? If there's something like that, there's somebody else that that patient can see. So I think we're still at a pretty early stage. Many of the reports that we see with post-COVID outcomes are the same kinds of things that we know about. So for instance, we published a report before COVID looking at fatigue symptoms in survivors of critical illness, patients that have been in an intensive care unit. And we found a year later that roughly two-thirds of patients report clinically significant symptoms of fatigue a year later. So when we're seeing COVID survivors also talk about fatigue in the weeks and months after, that's not saying to me that there's something unique to COVID yet. But through these specialized clinics, we can pay very careful attention to see if there are new things or trends and then begin to think about interventions that may be needed. So I think we're still learning an awful lot right now.
1: Well, that's because you guys send in your nurses every hour to take blood pressure and temperature and bring a stale sandwich in the middle of the night. These guys don't get any sleep in the ICU.
0: Sleep in the ICU is a very interesting topic. So sleep in the ICU was our third consecutive structured quality improvement project that we conducted in, in my ICU. So many years ago, we introduced early physical medicine rehabilitation. And patients began to get better. They had less confused thinking, better physical functioning. Then we said, I think we can do better if we decrease their sedation even further. We did a quality improvement project on sedation and delirium. Then I said, there's still a lot of this confused thinking or delirium. And our patients, now that they're awake, are telling us that they're having trouble sleeping at night. Now that we're not just pouring sedatives into them, they're saying this is a pretty noisy environment. So then we did a structured quality improvement project around sleep, and we were able to decrease patients' delirium when we put into place many environmental changes to help patients sleep, as well as non-pharmacologic kind of interventions. So sleep is critically important, and sleep is part of those SCCM, Society of Critical Care Medicine. PADIS guidelines. The S at the end of PADIS is for sleep improvement.
2: Can you expound a little further on what you did to improve that sleep environment? I mean, my famous knee jerk thing when my, my patient said, Oh, I got a good night's sleep last night, I always said, Well, you're breaking the rules. We have rules against sleeping here because it's so rare that a patient will say, Hey, I had a good night's sleep. But what did you do, especially in the ICU? Well, how did you change your environment so that patients were, are able to get sleep in an otherwise very noisy kind of atmosphere?
0: Our structured quality improvement project for sleep had the same kind of framework as our other quality improvement projects. We started by trying to understand the problem, understand what was in the literature, put together a multidisciplinary team and recognize that it's a problem with the systems and begin to think about what are some of the barriers. So we listened more often to patients and they told us that, for example, there were so many overhead pages at night. And those pages went into each and every patient's room. And in fact, we began to count things. So the best way to improve things is often to begin to count them. And we realized that in a single night shift, there might be 60 or 70 overhead pages. So imagine being woken up every 15 minutes. So we actually had an intervention around that and we said, hey, this is a real troubling intervention. Now that we're not deeply sedating our patients, this is really disturbing patients' sleep. So we did a bunch of environmental changes. That's just one example of environmental changes. We need to recognize that the ICU can be a very noisy environment and we need as best as possible to tone it down a few notches at night and not having the lights and sirens and everything going at night Just like it does during the day. So there were many environmental changes, and we spent a lot of time with our night shift nurses talking about this and looking for their input and getting patients' input about that.
1: You were talking about how, with this kind of action for an ICU patient where you're keeping them awake, you're keeping them engaged, you're getting them to move a little more, you can actually shorten their stay which has a lot of ramifications to it, both economic and, of course, the health of the patient. You think that there's a PR campaign that's necessary to try to change the way the consumer is feeling about that. I know when you think about family members, some of them call themselves patient advocates. And, of course, an awake patient sometimes blurs the line between what is a nurse and what is a waiter. And, you know, are they enjoying their stay in the hospital? And sometimes trying to get a family member to realize that a patient is better off at home, even though the family member might be a little nervous about giving that patient the care that might be necessary at home. There's an education process here, because I know, and I just went through it with my dad over the last few years, that there's a funny moment when you think the hospital is releasing your family member prior to your feeling like you're prepared to take care of them. How do you deal with the public relations, the different mindset to get everybody on the same page?
0: So so that's really really important. At the early stage one of the ways that we address that is part of our patient and family orientation materials to the ICU talks about delirium, talks about our early rehabilitation, to say this is how care is provided. But then you're right, there needs to be an entire communication through the entire recovery process of a patient to help prepare both the patient and the family member for return home. And it is an incredibly stressful event. We know from patients and families, simply moving from the intensive care unit to the regular part of the hospital is extremely stressful. And also then again, moving from the regular part of the hospital, the acute care ward to the home is incredibly stressful. And we know that patients have many complex medical needs. In fact, we've got a study right now that's looking at at healthcare needs of ICU patients when they're discharged home, both COVID patients and non-COVID patients to try to understand what those healthcare needs are and understand how often they're being met. And if they're not being met, is that related to patients having worse outcomes, including hospital readmission. So I think there's a lot of room for us to better understand and to work on that process to make it safer and better for patients and for healthcare systems as well. We all benefit if patients don't need to be readmitted to hospital. So we need to work very carefully on those discharge plans.
2: Are you working at all with the home health agencies relative to this?
0: So, absolutely, the PACT clinic, the post COVID clinic run by doctors Parker and Brigham, they partnered with Hopkins Home Healthcare Services up front. They were an original part of that partnership in order to try to help with that transition, including things like measuring patients' oxygen saturations once they were home after COVID, because patients often go home on home oxygen, but we need to be able to monitor that. So, home healthcare services are an essential part of the PACT. Post COVID clinic that's run at Johns Hopkins. That really is quite important.
1: That is one of those areas, Dale, where you got to help us communicate with the insurance companies. They need to understand more on what their economics could be with a healthier patient that is taken care of at home, as opposed to the kind of abandonment that families and patients feel when they leave the hospital, at least from their insurance companies helping them out.
2: Yeah, there's such a push, especially from Medicare, to prevent readmissions. And yet, what are we really doing to prevent readmissions, you know, in, in real time to actually care for patients and put the resources to really help patients in that watershed time when they've left the hospital, and yet they're not quite ready for full physical activity?
0: And I hope one thing that will help is the study of ours that, that I've mentioned. It's called APEX, or Addressing Post-Intensive Care Syndrome. So it's a federally funded study to actually measure, empirically measure, about these discharge needs and the implications of patients having unmet healthcare discharge needs and readmission to empirically show that there's a link between these two things. And we hope that that's a first step towards influencing that discharge process and the outpatient delivery of healthcare services. If a person
2: becomes confined in an ICU, what advice do you have to that patient, to our listeners, in case they someday find themselves in an ICU? What should they be doing as patients while they're lying in bed that can help their own recovery?
0: So interestingly, as we said at our Johns Hopkins Critical Care Conference, every year we start out with a patient family interview. And we learn so much by talking to our patients. So interestingly, if some patients know that they're going to have an intensive care unit stay because they're having a major surgery where an intensive care unit stay is normal, there can even be preparations before this. So if somebody's having major cardiac surgery or lung surgery, where it's known that they're going to go to an intensive care unit, talking through to say, you may have confused thinking In other words, delirium and giving some anticipation for this patients have told us that having knowledge beforehand about delirium may help them feel less anxious. I think engaging family members is going to be so important. Beginning to help educate patients and family members that being awake and moving really is the secret to getting better as quickly as possible. I think that's also very helpful as well.
1: Hey, Dale, what if one of our listeners feels that they're experiencing the symptoms you've described long after they have left the ICU? What would you suggest they do? How do they handle it? So
0: that's not an unusual situation in that sometimes patients suffer in silence and think that they're the only one that's having these problems. And sometimes some of the clinicians that they go to see aren't aware of post-intensive care syndrome and aren't aware that these are real consequences of them having been critically ill. So the Society of Critical Care Medicine has web pages specifically for patients that explain this in easy to understand terms and are things that patients can bring to their primary care teams to say, hey, is this what's happening for me? And there also are virtual and online support groups. For example, many people who are very seriously ill in the ICU have something called ARDS, acute respiratory distress syndrome. So the ARDS Foundation has a very popular Facebook page and people can interact and get support. So there are many, many things that are out there to help through this, particularly through things like the Society of Critical Care Medicine, the ARDS Foundation foundation, surviving sepsis campaign, many, many things.
1: Interesting. Last quick question. And there seems to be a bit of a trend where virtual reality is being used in patient care, especially once the patients go home. Can you talk about that just a bit? Sure. So there is interest even in the intensive care
0: unit. So before I get into the virtual reality, part of our rehabilitation for some of our patients, physical rehabilitation may involve interactive video games. So for some of our higher functioning patients that need a challenge, they may use a balance board, they may do boxing to work on their arm strength and coordination, they may do bowling, you know, and it also provides some sort of engagement and fun element as well. So interactive video games may be used for patients that are on life support machines when they're awake, alert, and and can move around. In terms of virtual reality, there are people who are interested about, yes, could we changed the perception of the ICU environment to make it less scary for patients. That's something that's not sort of within my area of expertise, but it's something that I've heard a little bit about. And I think people are interested even in the ICU environment and thinking about it. But certainly, of course, there's going to need to be a lot of investigation to look and see what the patient's perception of that is. And is this safe? Is this feasible? Is it beneficial? But these are interesting ideas that many people are thinking about.
1: That's it, Steve. I think you need bowling.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Without a doubt.
1: Dr. Dale Needham and Dr. Stephen Tabak, thank you again for joining. And thanks to our producer and editor, A.J. Mosley. Audio mastering is by Steve Rickyberg. And the music for We're Still Practicing is composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. Please take a minute to hit the subscribe button. All that does is let you know when our next episode is posted so you don't miss it. We'll see you next time. Stay healthy. Bye-bye.
0: From Kirkco Media. Media for your mind.